by feeling shame, I became more racist. Getting discomfortable with whiteness. This topic is something that makes me so uncomfortable, and it is the source of probably one of the biggest shame attacks I've had in recent years. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a leadership training program in Los Angeles. I'm not going to say the name of it because it was actually an amazing experience overall. But I want to focus on one negative thing that occurred. So I don't want to mar their whole reputation with this one shame story. However, if you have subscribed to my email list, which you can do at discomfortable.net, no pressure, whatever, then it will be pretty easy to figure out what I'm talking about. It was a five-day program, and the third day was dedicated to what they called. Embodying justice. I'll read the description of the session. Understanding our roles in advancing equity. In a large group, fellows engage in learning tools to develop a shared understanding of social justice vocabulary, examine our humanizing spectrum, journaling, and restorative practices tools. I don't know if you can tell, but already I feel. A sense of disillusionment. Even as I'm reading that, I'm kind of jaded.、Uh, there's a cynicism already creeping into my voice. Oh yeah, justice, equity.、Mm, okay, sure. But the truth is, I agreed with 99% of that session. So <laughs> effectively, I agreed with everything they had to say. I was like, "This is super valuable material. This is very challenging for me as a white man. I am very much being confronted with the fact that I really do have a lot of privilege, and I know that privilege is quite a controversial, hot button topic. And I actually want to do an entire episode just on privilege once I actually feel like I have something smart to say about it, which isn't right now." As a white person, these talks about social justice, racial justice, are uncomfortable because. You can't help but be confronted by the fact that you are benefiting from it implicitly, and that you're not entirely sure what to do about it, how to make it right. And that feeling naturally brings up a lot of shame. What's interesting is that I am also a gay man, so I'm kind of like caught between two worlds. On the one hand, I'm a white male, and I feel very much privileged. You know, like when I when I go through customs at the airport, they don't ask me any questions. I am so lucky to not have to face scrutiny at the border because honestly, when I do cross through the border, I always feel shame. I always feel like, oh my goodness, like what what if they think I did something wrong? And I'm like, but you didn't. You have you haven't done anything wrong. And I'm like, I know, but like, what if they think I did? I have this irrational fear of crossing through points of authority because. If you know anything about me, it's that I have a lot of shame. I always have, and I probably always will, and that's fine. But it means that I'm very, very attuned to the opinions of other people in a way where, kind of growing up for years, I basically believed that the opinions of other people were everything. It didn't really matter what objective truth was; it was the opinions of other people that determined who I was, my worth, my value, my position in the world. 
So crossing through customs really put a point on that belief because it didn't matter if going through customs I hadn't done anything wrong, which I never have. All that mattered was will they believe that I haven't done anything wrong? So given that shame that I feel crossing through customs, it's extraordinarily lucky that I'm white and male and whatever it is that is leading to these encounters where nobody even bats an eye at me. Because if they did start asking me questions, I would probably be all stuttery and, you know, full of shame and fear. But on the other hand, my point was, that was a long-winded aside, my point was that on the other hand, I am also a gay man, which means that I am also marginalized, which means that I grew up feeling a lot of trauma about the fact that I didn't feel like I fit into the world, that I was bad, I was wrong, I was aberrant, I was different, I was disgusting, I was perverted. I thought I was all of these horrible things and that I would never be accepted and that I wasn't good enough and, you know, all of those deep shame scars pretty much still haunt me today. So I feel a little bit like Blade, the daywalker. You know, Blade, he's half vampire, half human. He's able to kind of pass in both the world of vampires and the world of humans. This is a bad analogy. <laughs> anyway, there's kind of a feeling when you get into social justice type discussions that because I'm gay, I have the validity to speak. <laughs> but because I'm white and male, I do not have the validity to speak. So there's a lot of interesting conflict inside of me. I had the privilege of being white. I had the privilege of being a man and all that that entails in our society. And I had the disadvantage of growing up gay. However, I don't look at that as a disadvantage per se. I mean, I felt disadvantaged as a child. But now that I'm older, I feel like being gay was one of the very best things that ever happened to me. I probably would have never had a shame breakthrough if I wasn't gay. And having a shame breakthrough was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. So I'm privileged to have been gay. I'm privileged to have been able to see the world from an outsider perspective that made me question everything I was told. I didn't just buy what culture told me about society because I was like, um, actually, I don't fit into what you're saying. So that just can't be true. That just can't be the only way to be. There's got to be room for me as well. And that was a privilege in its own traumatic and challenging way. So going into this session about embodying justice, I was excited and I was a little nervous. And I felt like I belonged and I also worried that I was the problem. And one of the first exercises that we did was that the organizers of this lecture gave us a sheet. And on one side, there were all of these words related to racial justice. And on the other side, there were all these definitions. And you were supposed to connect the right word with the right definition. And I found it relatively easy. You know, there were a few that I had to kind of move around. But I felt like I had pretty much gotten them all. And then I got to the following definition, which I will read for you now directly out of the book. A global ideology and theory that proselytizes white culture, ideas, standards, and values as the norm, 
It is the basis for worldwide colonization and violence against people of color, past and present. And I was like, okay, that's pretty easy. That's probably like white supremacy or something like that. So I looked in the word list and none of those words were in there. And I was like, oh. And then when I was done filling in every other definition, the only word left that didn't have a definition yet was whiteness. So in this framework, the definition of whiteness is a global ideology and theory that proselytizes white culture, ideas, standards, and values as the norm. It is the basis for worldwide colonization and violence against people of color, past and present. Since this lecture, I have run this definition of whiteness by several white people, and most of them are like, sure, fine, yeah, legit. But something about it didn't sit right with me, and I couldn't quite put my finger on exactly why. It wasn't that I disagreed with the spirit of it in the sense that, yes, there is a ideology that says white people are the best. And it is true that that has dominated the world for the last several centuries. But is that the definition of whiteness? I am white. (laughs) I am whiteness. Whiteness is my experience. And is it true that I am that ideology? I think it's true that I was born into that ideology, I think it's true that I have benefited from that ideology. I think it's true that I have bought into that ideology even. But I do not think that I am that ideology. And that is an extraordinarily important distinction. So I'm sitting in this lecture hall with a hundred fellows in this really cool leadership training program on the third day. And up to this point, I loved this program and I loved everybody in it. They were the most inspiring group of change makers, social entrepreneurs, and extraordinarily diverse and progressive group of do-gooders. And this whole organization this, this whole program, I was so excited to be a fellow, to be a part of it. I really, I could just tell that this was a community that I valued. But then all of a sudden, with this one definition of one word that describes me, I felt completely out. I didn't belong. I wasn't part of the group. What the program presented felt like their orthodoxy. Even though the lecture was done by an outsider, it had the stamp of approval of the whole organization, and everybody there in the lecture hall was listening, and nobody was saying, hey, I don't agree. So I just felt like I was completely, suddenly, out of sync with everyone in the program. I didn't belong. I wasn't one of these cool social justice change makers. I was an imposter. And I felt that as soon as people found out that I wasn't in line with this one definition of one word that defined me, that I would be ostracized, that I would be judged and criticized and scorned. And I was suddenly filled 
with so much shame. Is this who I am? One of these white guys who gets all defensive about the definition of whiteness? Like, that is so not a hot look right now. And that's not who I thought I was. I thought I was, like, really on board with all of the racial justice work going on. I thought that I was really woke, quote-unquote. I thought that I was really self-aware and and really self-critical and really able to hold uncomfortable truths, like the fact that I have a lot of racial privilege. But suddenly I was like, am I... Am I, like, really right-wing? Am I really conservative? Am, am, I, am I one of these white people who's claiming reverse racism? The whole thing didn't gel with my own identity as a really progressive person. And I was terrified to say anything about it. I was just sort of sitting there, stewing, looking around, being like, is it just me? But at the same time, I couldn't get over what I felt was wrong about this definition, even though I wasn't even fully able to articulate at that moment what it was exactly that rubbed me the wrong way. But I knew that I was feeling shame because every time I feel shame physiologically, the same thing happens. My heart starts to beat really fast. My face gets flushed and it feels like I'm going to start crying in public. And that's how it felt right in that moment. It felt like if I say anything about this, I am going to burst into tears in front of all of these people. But at the same time, I knew that I had to say something. I had to be honest. I had to be authentic, even if it meant that I might completely ostracize myself. Because being honest about shame is the one thing that I know will help me get through my shame. So after we finished this definition exercise, the facilitator of the seminar asked all 100 of us to divide ourselves into what we thought were our groups by race or by nationality or by sexual orientation. So everyone started moving around like, okay, white women over here, black people up here, Asian people over here. And, of course, like, this made everyone a little bit uncomfortable. And the facilitator was like, that's the point. I'm trying to make you uncomfortable. This is all intentional. So I ended up joining a white person group. And then I discovered that there was a predominantly white queer group. So I left the white people and joined the white queers. And in the white queer breakout group, there was maybe half a dozen of us, I voiced my discomfort with the definition of whiteness. And I said, you know, to me, this definition is white supremacy. That's what white supremacy is. So why is it being called whiteness? And it felt like everyone in my group disagreed. Uh, One person said that the reason you couldn't call it white supremacy is that most white people would say, oh, well, I'm not a white supremacist. So they would dismiss it and not realize how they were, in fact, complicit in it. So by calling it whiteness, it was forcing all white people to confront the fact that they take part in this. And I was like, I understand that, but I still don't agree. Like, I don't think you can redefine a word just for expedience. It's like, is that the definition of whiteness? And no, I don't think it is. And everybody in the group was trying really hard to get me on side, but nobody could make an argument that I found believable. 
And there was, in fact, one guy in the group who, once I voiced my concern, I felt, and I don't know for sure because I can't read his brain, but after that moment, I felt like he really didn't like me anymore. He started to speak to me in a very condescending, dismissive way, and I felt very judged. But then I was also able to refocus it and see that it probably wasn't really about me. I was probably just enacting for him one of his greatest fears. You know, this is a a white privileged man who happens to be gay, who's struggling with the same kind of tensions I'm struggling with between being, okay, I'm marginalized, but I'm also privileged. You know, where do I fit in? And I think for him, he was trying, as a lot of white people do, to make up for his privilege by really submitting himself to the logic of social justice. And I think I can completely understand that. And I can completely understand the desire to say, help me atone. But at the same time, I don't think I can do that if it goes past my values. And I was open the whole time, like, hey, I might be wrong here. I might be completely in the wrong, but I need to be honest about what I'm feeling right now. So over lunch, I went and spoke to the facilitator of the seminar, and I said that I felt shame about the definition of whiteness, and I wasn't sure, you know, why yet. I hadn't quite put it all together, but I was uncomfortable about it, and I was hoping that she could explain how she justifies this definition. And she said that it was important to note that whiteness wasn't just something that white people took part in, that people of color could, in fact, take part in whiteness and oppress themselves or oppress others. In fact, there was a second definition on the sheet, which she called anti-blackness. And this is the definition that she had for anti-blackness. A global ideology and theory that dehumanizes people of color to justify isolation, violence, and extermination of black and brown bodies through unexamined whiteness. And she explained whiteness and anti-blackness as a spectrum. On one end, there's whiteness, and on the other end, there's anti-blackness. And I was like, but they're the same thing. Whiteness is white is best, and anti-blackness means not white is bad. So you're saying there's a spectrum with the same definition on either end? And she was like, yes, it's a negative spectrum. The entire spectrum is bad. It's not binary. You have to get rid of your binary thinking. It's, it's bad on one end and bad on the other. And I still just didn't feel like it made any sense. I was still filled with shame, and I still disagreed. So after lunch, I did what I felt I had to do, which was raise my hand in front of the whole group and say, that definition of whiteness made me feel shame. You know, I don't fully understand why. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I just wanted to be honest that that's how it made me feel. And in this group, when you're trying to like show support for what someone is saying, instead of clapping, you're supposed to snap. And, I mean, I was really sort of emotionally hooked at that moment, but I don't recall getting a lot of snaps. However, afterwards, a few people did come up to me and say, hey, man, um, I just wanted to say thanks for being honest. So that day after the seminar, and in fact... For the next, like, week or more afterwards, 
I kept running through what had happened in my head. And here's a few things that I will note. The shame wasn't about the definition of whiteness per se. The shame was indicative of how much I cared about these people. If I was just on the internet and I ran across this definition of whiteness, I'd be like, hmm, that doesn't really sit with me. I don't really agree. And I would just move on. It's just one person's opinion. But when that opinion comes from a source that you really respect, a source that, in fact, you thought you were a part of, a community that you thought you belonged to, then when there's suddenly this break in synchronicity between you and that community, and it seems like you are the only one experiencing that asynchronicity, that is the source of shame. You know, I define shame as the feeling that you are different, bad, and alone, and that is exactly how I felt. I so respected this whole community, and I really wanted to be a part of it, and I really wanted their respect and validation and that, that sense of belonging and connection. That is, you know, the best feeling that we have as social animals. And all of a sudden, with one disagreement, one very important disagreement, you know, like this is a very important topic, racial justice. I suddenly felt that I was different than everyone else, that I was alone, and that my definition was bad. I was that ignorant, fragile, indignant white guy defending whiteness. As much as I didn't want to be that, that's what I was. That's how I felt. That was my truth. When I reflected back on what happened, part of me wished that I had have been able to stand up in front of everyone and articulate very clearly why I disagreed with the definition of whiteness. But the truth is, in the moment, I couldn't fully articulate what it was. It just didn't feel right. And I, I was so full of shame surrounding the sudden realization that maybe I didn't belong to this amazing group of people that I knew that if I were to try to articulate myself, it would come out badly. The way we react to shame is three different very primal reactions. It's essentially our fight or flight mechanism. You either want to run away, which is literally what I thought about doing. I was like, after lunch, I am leaving this program and I am never coming back. Or you want to fight, which would be me standing up and saying, this is bullshit. You don't know what you're talking about. Who are you to define whiteness? You're not even white. You know, like just going full shame, trying to like hit them back with the exact same shame that I felt they had made me feel. Or the third option is just to freeze, which in a shame scenario would basically be people-pleasing, an inauthentic pandering in order to be accepted, even though deep down inside, you know that that is not your authentic truth. I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, don't even listen to me. I'll just stop right now. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. So instead of doing any of those things, I tried to be as honest as I could with the amount of courage I could bring up was just to say that I felt shame. I didn't even say that I disagreed, in fact. All I could say was I felt shame. But the reason I felt shame was because I disagreed. But honestly, I didn't even have the courage to say that at the time. I just felt like everyone was going to judge and reject me. And 
that's okay. I didn't have the courage to do it, but I was proud of myself for having the courage to at least be honest about feeling shame. And I was proud that I didn't fall into those shame reactions and run away or start a fight. Because starting a fight when you're in shame is an extremely bad idea because you will not be able to argue your side of the fight logically or effectively because shame has trapped you in your fight-or-flight reflex. You know, that's, that's your limbic system. It's the most basic, most primal part of your brain. And from there, your prefrontal cortex is actually shut off. So you cannot make a rational argument. So trying to stand up and be really articulate about why I disagreed, though that felt like the right, most courageous thing to do, would have actually been a disaster at that moment because I simply didn't have the intellectual function to do it. Don't get into the argument when you are emotionally triggered, be it shame or anger or fear or whatever. They're all connected. And as I thought about it that night, I was finally able to articulate exactly what it was about the definition of whiteness that bothered me. And it very much comes from my understanding of shame. Shame is all about innate characteristics. You know, guilt is about specific actions. And guilt is the healthy side of self-judgment, you know. It's the positive side of that shame reaction that says, Okay, in one instance or in a series of specific instances, I did wrong based on my own values and opinions, and I want to change that. Guilt is part of what Carol Dweck would call a growth mindset. It's the belief that you are not defined by your past mistakes and that you can always change and grow and do better. And that belief is necessary for changing and growing and doing better. Shame, on the other hand, is a kind of universal judgment, a negative judgment of your innate qualities, something like being gay. It's an innate quality. It's judged poorly. Therefore, I, in my very deepest personhood, am bad. That is shame. And it's connected to what Carol Dweck would call a fixed mindset. So the problem with that definition of the word whiteness is that whiteness is an innate trait that describes something about millions of people that is fundamental to their very personhood, to their their sense of self. It's not something that you can change. So to define the innate quality of millions of people as something bad is inherently shaming and trapping them in a potential fixed mindset about who they are. I actually think that it's problematic for a person who is not white to define whiteness at all. Just like I would never dream of defining what blackness means. I'm not black. I don't know what the experience of blackness is. It would be totally inaccurate, biased, and shaming for me to ever say to a a black person, this is what it means to be you. So to have a facilitator who was a person of color in a position of power in this community that I really respected tell me that the definition of my innate trait of whiteness, which they didn't even share with me, which they've never even experienced firsthand, means something negative, was super shaming. I actually don't think it's even appropriate for me to define whiteness as a white person 
for another white person. Their innate experience with whiteness is their own. And I think we all have to define our innate selves the way that we experience it. I can tell you what queerness means to me, but I can't tell you what queerness means to someone else. And I can't tell you what whiteness means to someone else. And I can't tell you what blackness means for anyone because I'm not black. Or straightness. On the other hand, if the definition had been called something like white supremacy, that is an action. White supremacy is not an innate trait. It therefore allows that concept to be kept in a growth mindset. It allows the people involved in white supremacy to say, okay, this is a bad thing, I'm involved in it, and I'm going to change it. It creates a sense of guilt, which is actionable and healthy, as opposed to a sense of shame. You could also call it white hegemony or white nationalism or white cultural dominance. There's so many different words or phrases that you could use to describe that definition without it being an innate trait. And all of those words would be A, more accurate, and B, more useful. Because shame doesn't change people. This is one of the fundamental aspects that I think our culture gets wrong about shame all the time. And it destroys me every time I see it. Because people think that the way to deal with problematic behavior is to shame it, to shame it out of existence. But that's not what happens. Shame doesn't actually cause things to go away. Shame causes things to hide. Shame doesn't cause people to change. Shame causes people to freeze or people please. Oh, I'm not racist. Literally no one in the world will admit to being something that society says is super shamey, which is a racist. But yet we know that racism still thrives and exists all over the country. Even white nationalists, even members of the KKK will say, well, but I'm not racist. We have been using shame to deal with social ills like racism for decades and decades and decades. And it hasn't worked. It pushed racism underground, but the racism actually still existed. No one would admit to it. So, I mean, I've talked about this before, but basically we got into a situation where white people didn't think there was that much racism anymore because it was hidden and we were all denying that we even had it because it was so shamey, but it was actually still at work all the time and it was affecting people of color in extremely dramatic ways. It was, it was oppressing them. It was murdering them. And shame wasn't healing it, wasn't stopping it. It was just masking it and hiding it. And then even worse, when Trump got into power, he started to normalize racism again. And all those people who had been nursing racist ideas but felt too shamed to say anything about it suddenly felt not only empowered but emboldened, actually like excited to come out of the closet and say, yeah, I'm fucking racist too without actually admitting to being racist. <laughs> but they were able to at least voice their racist opinions, finally. Literally, just yesterday, I was in a bathroom stall 
in a very progressive hippie neighborhood of Vancouver, and there was a piece of graffiti that said the following. From one whitey to all, if you do not actively make racists feel ashamed, you are benefiting from it. So this person means well. They are trying to help their fellow, quote-unquote, whitey be less racist. However, their strategy of using shame is not only ineffective, I would argue that it is actually exacerbating the problem. So everyone who is using shame to do something good is actually contributing to the very thing that they are trying to solve. By shaming people who are racist, those people are actually becoming entrenched in their beliefs. This is what's so fascinating about what happened to me at this leadership conference. Because I'm a very progressive person. I am totally on board with 99.9% of what was being said in that seminar about racial justice. But in that one moment of shame, I suddenly felt like I was a complete outsider, like I was the enemy. So I felt like all of these people who I used to be aligned with now hated me. They didn't like me. I was the problem. And so I felt like this deep sense of opposition. I actually felt like the facilitator of the seminar disliked me and thought I was bad. And I felt extremely uncomfortable around her. I felt like we were enemies all of a sudden because she had made me feel shame and shame felt so bad. And I desperately wanted to shame her back because that is our natural instinctual reaction to shame. And she was black. She was African-American. And for like several days afterwards, when I interacted or saw someone who was African-American and involved in the fight for social justice, I assumed, oh, this person hates me. Yep. If this person knew the full story of me, that I don't agree with the definition of whiteness in this one framework, they wouldn't like me. I would be their enemy. By feeling shame, I became more racist. I started to see the people who I felt had caused my shame, the people who were different than me, as my enemies because I thought I was their enemy. I thought they didn't like me, which was totally not necessarily true. But nonetheless, it made me defensive and not want to like them. I was afraid to talk to the woman who ran this seminar. You know, like we had an after party and she was there and I avoided her because I felt like we were enemies now. And I felt like she didn't like me, that she was judging me, that she thought I was bad and worthless and all and shameful. And as a result, I felt the same thing about her. And I actually do think that that definition of whiteness is biased and shaming. Though all white people may be part of a culture of dominance, that doesn't mean that that's what they innately are. And if you believe that white people have an innate difference, if you believe that that innate difference is that they are oppressors or that they are violent inherently, that the white race is inherently oppressive and violent, if that's what you believe, that is in itself a racial prejudice. So to me, it was amazing to think 
that someone whose entire career is based on thinking about reconciliation and equity and equality and justice, that they would not see this glaring, ironic mistake in their own work was kind of incredible. But then I was like, of course she wouldn't see that. You only feel shame about the things that you feel describe you in an innate way. And whiteness does not describe the facilitator of this seminar in an innate way. And you will not feel shame about something that doesn't describe you. So it actually makes perfect sense that we all have blind spots to the things that will trigger shame in people that have different identities than we do. It will be very difficult for me to pick up what will trigger shame for someone when I haven't had the same lived experience as them. And that's just a natural part of being human. In fact, one of the most natural things that humans have is a bias towards in-groups and out-groups. This has been studied and verified scientifically many times, that in our instincts, we have a survival mechanism that served us well, presumably, when we were hunter-gatherers or we wouldn't have it, which motivates us subconsciously to naturally create groups and to naturally prioritize the groups that we feel we are a part of and to naturally distance and demonize and even attack groups that we feel we are not a part of. That is a natural instinct of human nature. So that means that people who are engaging in racism are actually just doing what nature is telling them to do, which is to create in-groups and out-groups. When we were hunter-gatherers, we protected our genetic line by killing off other tribes. In fact, if you've read Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, you will know that there used to be many species of humans coexisting together. For example, the way that in today's world we have all different species of monkeys. We have chimps, we have gorillas, we have bonobos, and they all exist at the same time. Well, there used to be the same thing for humans. There used to be Neanderthals. There used to be all types of different human species. And Homo sapiens, us, we killed them all. We interbred with them a little bit, and then we killed them all. And we did that because we had a natural survival instinct that said, protect our genetic line. And then even within our own Homo sapien tribes, we had a natural instinct that said, kill the other tribe, avoid the other tribe. Our entire instinctual facility is based around the expectation that we will live in a very homogenous tribe of 50 to 150 people and that we will fight against all the other tribes. So why are we so surprised that there are an untold number of people who are still engaged in a very natural process that their instincts are subconsciously telling them is right. Shaming people for an innate part of who they are, for their instincts, is not going to help them deal with those instincts. It is going to make them worse. Why? Because when you shame someone, you put them into their limbic brain, which is their monkey brain. Literally, it's their oldest, it's like the lizard brain of the human. 
And when you push someone into their lizard brain, their prefrontal cortex shuts off. So by shaming someone, you are literally turning them into a caveman, into a monkey. And in fact, the way to combat our instincts is not by diving in to the part of our brain that is most closely connected to the instincts. It's the opposite. It's by going up to our higher brain, to our rational brain, to our logic centers in the prefrontal cortex, the very area of the brain that gets shut off when you shame someone, that gets shut off when people get too emotional. So when dealing with a racist, we actually want to calm them down, to stop them from feeling emotions, to stop them from feeling threatened, to stop them from going into shame or fight or flight or freeze. We want to elevate their intellect up to their rational brain and say, hey man, or woman, I know it makes sense to want to demonize that person who looks different than you because you have a natural instinct inside of you that creates in-groups and out-groups. But that's an old instinct that we don't actually need anymore because we don't live in hunter-gatherer tribes. So if you use your higher brain and your logic and you look at the science of race, which doesn't exist, there is no distinction between races. Some people just have different pigmentation. In fact, there is more genetic diversity within a race than there is statistically between races, which means you might even be more genetically similar to that person who looks different than you than that other person over there who you think is the same quote-unquote race as you. When we're not feeling threatened, when we're not feeling attacked, we can actually go over and say hello to that person and ask them questions openly and respectfully and compassionately. And we can start to get to know that population, that, that community, that race, and discover that they're just as human as we are. And that is the place from which we are going to start to see people who look different than us as our brothers and sisters. So going back to the definition of whiteness, the work that was being done in this seminar, 99.9% of which I agreed with, that work needs to be heard by the audience that is propagating white supremacy. And that is white people. And if inside the framework that you are using to talk to the group that most needs to hear that message is an innately shaming term about the group that most needs to hear that message, you are immediately going to turn your audience into monkeys. And they are not going to hear your message. No, they're going to react like a monkey. They're going to leave or they're going to fight you or they're going to freeze. So actually, instead of shaming people, the way to get the message across is, and I believe this so firmly, always through empathy. Because empathy is inherently about equality. Empathy says, I feel what you're feeling. I understand why you're feeling it. And I relate to it. I am the same as you. So when you want to deal with a racist, you have to swallow your pride and say, you know what? 
I understand where you're coming from. I get it. I know why you feel that way. And I have my own racial prejudices that I am struggling with. But that being said, there's a better way. And with that kind of approach, when you can disarm someone, when you can say, we're the same. Hey, I'm not judging you, man. We're the same. From there, you can start to engage them in an actual discussion that will get them thinking about the real logic and facts of the case. They will put their guard down. They will de-armor. And they will be willing to meet people that they saw as enemies, like I was doing, as equals. The truth is, I think we're all a little bit racist. There's a song in the musical Avenue Q, Everyone's a Little Bit Racist. And I happen to agree. We all have an innate sense of in-groups and out-groups. And I think that we all have prejudices and ideas and stereotypes about different cultures and different races that are so ingrained in us from our culture, from our childhood, that we can't help but not realize it. So even this this woman whose whole job is reconciliation and social justice and equality, she revealed her natural sense of bias when she failed to see that her own definition of the word whiteness was itself a mild form of racial prejudice. And I am just as guilty of this as she is. Why? Because I'm not recording a podcast complaining about some extremely tiny slight that happened to a person of color. It's so obvious that I'm defending whiteness because I'm white. I'm looking out for number one in a way. And I admit that that's natural. That's a natural reaction. I feel shame about the things that I think are innate to me. So naturally, I am going to be defensive about the things that relate to me. And I know that we live in a world where that's not really good enough anymore. So this experience, though I feel like my point of view is legitimate, I also think it completely reveals how I could do so much more to promote racial justice if I take the time to try to see things from different perspectives. And when I look at the perspective of people of color, I'm like, goddamn right you want to shame white people. Of course you do. Though I do not believe that white people are any different than any other race, which is to say, I do not believe there is an innately domineering, violent, supremacist gene inside of white people. It is still true that over the last however many centuries, white people and white culture have been the source of world dominance, imperialism, colonialism, oppression, violence, and slavery. That is true. And what effect did that have on people of color? It made them feel incredible shame. It made them feel that they were not good, that they were different, that they were bad, that they were alone in the world, that they didn't belong, that they were subhuman. They thought that because that's what white culture told them, because that's what white culture thought. It's it's a cultural message though it does connect to a very natural human instinct in groups and outgroups, it's not a given. And that means that culture can change. We can change our culture. And in fact, we have to change our culture. That is what we now have to do. But I believe just as strongly that the way to combat that racism and the way to work towards equality and the way to 
even out privilege is through empathy and not through shame. But that's extremely hard. If you're a person of color who has systemically for generations been shamed and oppressed, that is very naturally going to cause you to want to react with one of the three most common reactions to shame, fight, flight, or freeze. And right now, we are seeing fight. And that is perfectly understandable and perfectly okay. I can't tell people not to react emotionally. It's impossible. We have the emotions that we have. I cannot police people's reactions. And the fact is, the culture that I am a part of and that I have benefited from has made millions of people feel deeply shamed for generations. And it is entirely natural and justified for them to react in their instinctual way towards that shame by shaming my culture right back. That's perfectly natural. But as you can see, we shamed them, they shame us, we shame them back. It's just a pinball game of shame, of reactivity that just goes back and forth. So someone has to decide to be non-reactive. And that doesn't mean that you don't feel shame. That means that you make a concerted effort to control how you deal with your shame. You make a concerted effort not to react to shame in one of those three ways, to not put more shame into the world, but at the same time, to not be an inauthentic people pleaser or to just disappear from the conversation altogether. So if you're actually out there trying to fight for equality, then I think you should consider taking a vow of non-reactivity to shame. But it completely depends on your values. You know, let's look at the word justice, racial justice. What does justice mean in that sense? You could argue that it is completely justified that the culture that has been dominating and shaming the rest of the world, that it is justified to shame them back and to dominate them right back. And if that's your logic, I'm not going to say that your logic is flawed. If you think that justice is an eye for an eye, then fair enough. But I don't think that that is going to make the world a better place. It's going to feel cathartic, but it's not going to create reconciliation. It's not going to create equality. It's not going to solve the issue. It's just going to turn it around. So it is justified to demonize and shame white culture if you think that justice means an eye for an eye. But if you want to create a world of true equality, a world where all these different races or groups actually get along, then an eye for an eye is not going to work. And I think that everyone benefits when we create a culture of equality. I think even the oppressors, even the people on the top, will feel better when there's equality, even though they don't think that they will. I defer to Nelson Mandela on this when he said in his book, A Long Walk to Freedom, after serving 28 years in prison, when he had the chance to become the prime minister of South Africa. To be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. So while I do believe that that definition of whiteness was not part of the solution, 
I have to start thinking about the ways in which I am not truly free until all the people and cultures who do not share in the same privileges that I do are raised up to a level of equality. And by the same token, I am also not free if I am shaming the people who I disagree with. And I think it's clear that I could be doing more. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like for me, but I am actually so grateful that I had this shamey experience at this lecture about justice because though it was started by me thinking I'm right, (laughs) it's ending with me thinking, yeah, okay, sure. But what are you doing to solve this issue? Just standing up for whiteness is not enough. (laughs) And one thing I can do is exactly this, to be really honest about the fact that I think I have all kinds of racial prejudices, racial stereotypes that I need to be looking out for and deconstructing with my upper logical brain as much as I can. And if there's one message that I can give off, which I think is really important, it's this message that shame does not solve any social problems. Using shame against anyone you disagree with that is a human doesn't work. If you're using shame against a corporation or an organization, yes, sometimes that can actually work. You can shame some corporation into changing their policy on certain chemicals. That does seem to work. But if you're actually dealing with humans, shame does not work. So on a human level, whoever it is on whatever issue that you're trying to engage with and that you're trying to show them what you think is a really beneficial point of view, you need to come from empathy. That's all there is.